Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Welcome back to Republicans Defeating Trump. I'm Ron Steslow. We decided to release this episode sooner than expected because it touches on two U.S. Supreme Court decisions we expect to hear about soon. In this episode, I'll talk more with conservative attorney and Lincoln Project co-founder George Conway about his involvement with and change of heart toward Donald Trump. We also talk about how the president's psychological state is affecting the country. And finally, we'll discuss those two looming cases dealing with Trump's tax returns that are going to set an important legal precedent around presidential power. George, thanks so much for taking the time today. Uh, I know you're very busy. Happy to be here. So I want to start with one really important question. Most of the folks who know you know that you are anti-Trump and that you're married to Kellyanne. And maybe that's all they know, unless they're in the hyper-politically engaged set. So for those who, who know who you are, you know, maybe because of the SNL sketch or just, you know, from, from, from Twitter, was there ever a moment that you did support Trump? Maybe to support your wife during the campaign? Or was there a moment when you did? The moment was during 2016 and early 2017. And when he was the last person standing, I was going to support whoever was running against Hillary Clinton because I was never a fan of Hillary Clinton. I didn't like Bill Clinton. I had questions about her that many Republicans had, which is frankly why she didn't get elected. I think a you know, if Joe Biden had been running, he would have been elected. I don't think I would have voted for him either. But, you know, I've been a Republican and a conservative since 1980 when I was 17 years old and a freshman in college. I basically became a Republican at that point for a lot of different reasons that look a lot different now. But that's that's who I've been for all these years. And so, Trump was not my first choice or anywhere near my first choice. And uh, there were point there were points during the primary process in 2016 that I thought, oh my gosh, I could never vote for this guy. Yeah, you and a lot of other Republicans. <laughs> um, and I think the point for me, you know, the tipping point at that point for me was when Trump said these absolutely horrific things about Heidi Cruz. I just thought, like, what, what is wrong with this guy? And at that point, I thought, you know, I could never support him. But that sort of faded. And, you know, we supported both of us, Kellyanne and me, both supported Cruz. She worked for Cruz. She worked for a stable of Cruz super PACs. Right. And, right. you know, she was very harsh on Trump then. And even after it was clear Trump was going to win the nomination. We had the New Jersey primary and my wife told me, hey, make sure we vote for Cruz. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's a binary choice, which yeah. is something which is important also today, yeah. even though it's a different binary choice. Yeah. And at that point, I thought that for all Trump's flaws, maybe there was going to be some good in him. He wasn't Hillary. Uh, we had lost Justice Scalia, and this, there was this open seat on the Supreme Court, and that was obviously significant to me as a, as a conservative lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't fathom Donald Trump as he actually turned out to be. And there's an interesting 
article by a clinical psychologist um, that came out. He was it was self published in Medium, and I actually tweeted it out here the day of the recording. And he makes the clinical case very powerfully that Donald Trump is a psychopath. He also makes a case more important to the point I want to make here is that that's hard for people to comprehend. Right. It's hard to comprehend right. somebody who has no morals, no conscience, no capacity for remorse, no fundamental beliefs other than trying to win and dominate and promote the glory of himself. That's right. really hard for people to get their brains around, their arms around. And I didn't comprehend it. I thought he was just your regular garden variety business world egomaniac. Or, or that it was an act, right? I think a lot of people thought it was an act. I didn't quite think it was an act to some extent because it was too consistent, right? He, he just, he's one of these guys who is who he is and says what he says and, and, and really doesn't give a damn about it. And I think that was actually part of his appeal to the public because they don't like they 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 you get sick of of blown dried uh, politicians and you know they hold their hands together and get their mealy mouth and they're afraid of offending everybody and, and here's some guy who says what's on his mind and then that was there was a refreshing aspect to it and there was an appealing aspect to it. You know, it, it is sort of like, remember Ed Koch, people liked Ed Koch because they just, he didn't, he didn't, he, he wasn't afraid of saying what the hell pop was, was in his mind. That's, that's people why it was part of John McCain's appeal. The difference is neither of them were narcissistic psychopaths mm -hmm. in the way that Donald Trump is. I mean, they may have been narcissistic to some extent. Trump was different. And it was really hard to comprehend that for some, for many. I mean, I think the, the many mental health professionals saw saw it immediately, but nobody really published their concerns, and they were restricted by the Goldwater rule. But to me, I just thought, well, yes, he's he, if he gets elected, there are going to be these cringeworthy moments where he's just mm -hmm. going to say something off the rails, but it'll be okay because he'll realize the office is something much bigger than him, that he's doing this for the country and that he has to kind of become more presidential. And there are going to be these people around him who will constrain him. That was all false. That was yeah. all self-deception. And it was self-deception based upon the assumption that somewhere – Wrapped around, you know, underneath the orange makeup and the floofed hair, and the, and the, and 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 the crazy stuff that comes out of his mouth, there was a human being with a conscience and a soul. Yeah, and it turned out there isn't and wasn't. Yeah, why do you think he kept getting the benefit of the doubt? This is the point, actually, that I was going to make through that article. Yeah, that I said I tweeted yeah. by a guy here in the district, Doctor Vince Greenwood. People can't fathom they they have con we all have conscience we all do bad things we all do good things yeah. we are not perfect human beings we all need the lord's forgiveness mm -hmm. but we feel guilty when we do something wrong yeah. we know that maybe i shouldn't have said that that was hurtful and then we think next time we won't do it again we get mad and then we feel bad that's not true of donald trump and what mm -hmm. happens is people just assume he's like them in some ways. 
And so they don't realize that they're dealing with a conscienceless, remorseless person who appears to be a human being, but isn't in a fundamental way. But he continued to get a pass in 2016. You mentioned the Heidi Cruz comment. He did. He, did. he got a pass. And that was the reason. And it is the reason that persists to this day. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's happening now in 2020 is that people weren't paying as much attention to his antics because everything was fine. The economy was fine. Where's Ukraine? What's this Mueller thing about? And Mm -hmm. all this stuff about what he was telling people to do with Mueller. It's just all this Washington noise. Right. Now people are dying because Mm -hmm. a man who doesn't care about anyone other than himself spent 10 weeks or more ignoring the scientific evidence and the intelligence reports being presented to him about the danger of the coronavirus and went around the country at rallies or in the, at the White House or on Twitter saying, this will all go away. We have, You're gonna have zero cases. cases. We'll have zero yep. cases. Yep. It's under control. The, the coronavirus is the Democrats' new hoax. And even as late as March 9th, at, you know, it was a Sunday, I think, in Mar-a-Lago, he told a bunch of donors, those people out there are just trying to destroy the country by shutting down the meetings and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then you need, the next week, he declared a national emergency because they finally got through to him and said, hey, you know, millions of people could die if he, if nothing is done and you see those gra- those statistics that came out yeah. from the, yeah. from the scientists who said well if you started getting people on board with social distancing and closing things down a week earlier tens of thousands of lives would have been saved if you waited a few more days right i mean they didn't do that number you could get some of those crazy high projections and it was only when they finally got to him that, you know, this is going to be million or two million that, that he, I, I think he got religion on this because then he realized he would be on the hook on that. But he's still on the hook, on the hook for that, but he's still on the hook for not having done it days earlier, for not having made sure that the bureaucracy um, found sources and encouraged private companies to engage, to create tests I mean, so much could have been done, so much more could have been done, so much more could have been done earlier had the president of the United States been in touch with reality and cared about something other than himself. He cared about the stock market. He he threatened to fire a CDC official who went out and gave a talk on the 25th or 26th of February saying that the government was preparing for a pandemic and that there could be substantial community spread of the virus, meaning we have the pan- pandemic here in the United States. And the stock market went down and he flipped out at this woman. Yeah. And if he had, instead of flipping out of this woman, he said he, he'd come back from India where he was and said, this is absolutely right. And we need to take steps. We need to be prepared to take steps now. And then we had done some of the things that were later done, like, you know, closing down schools and stay at home orders or just people wearing masks 
or doing something, just cutting down, closing down workplaces, just cutting down the contact among people, we'd be looking at maybe 10 or 20,000. You mean, in other words, taking the whole thing seriously? Taking the the whole thing seriously and thinking about someone other than himself and not engaging in the kind of self-delusion that narcissistic psychopaths engage in. So to go back to 2016, that's, that's what really happened. I mean, I think I and a lot of other people engaged in our own form of projection. They talk about psychological projection with, in, with Donald Trump, that he projects onto others bad things that he himself does. He calls everyone a liar. He calls everyone stupid. But in reality, he knows that he can be called out on his lies, and he's 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 fearful that he's not as intelligent, he's not the stable genius that he believes he says he is. And conversely, just as somebody like him projects bad traits onto other people, his traits, mm-hmm. we project normalcy onto him. And that is the reason why he was able to sort of get by with all his mistakes. And then you combine that with what I was talking about earlier, which was there was something refreshing about him just blurting stuff out because he's like, you know, my wife used to put it this way during the campaign. He talks like regular people. And in that sense, that's right. He just says stuff. And we all say dumb things when we're talking at the diner or at the bar and he just blurts stuff out, and there's something non-pretentious about it in a way yeah. that's artificially – it looks artificially honest because he is right. honestly showing you who he because is. Because that's what's in his head. That's what's yeah. in his head, and there's a certain kind of refreshing honesty to that. Yeah. But the fact is that nothing in his mind is a jumble of lies and distortions and untruths and wishful thinking and self-delusion and self, self-praise. self Yeah. There's, there's never any remorse. It's so, never any worse. He's not capable of remorse. The only time we've seen him in the last few years show anything remotely approaching remorse was when he uh-huh. got caught red-handed with the Billy Bush tape. Yeah. And what happened was there, they, they showed him the tape, and he, he was he, – But it's undeniable. It was undeniable. Right. Even yeah. for him, at least at that point. And I think I'm sure Melania was very mad at him. She wouldn't appear with him on the, you know, the the necessary video like the 60 Minutes show with Clinton and, and the, with the Clintons back in 1992. She refused to do that with him, and basically said, "This is your problem." She didn't do, you know, she wasn't Mrs. McGreevy, if you remember the Governor McGreevy incident, and she and she wasn't um, Mrs. Spitzer. She just was not going to play that role. Good for her and. You know, he was in a heap of trouble and they got him to cut a short video, which was broadcast that Friday night, I think it was, um, saying, expressing remorse, saying, I, I, I don't know whether he said, I'm sorry, or I apologize, but he said something that was at least on its face remorseful. But then a few weeks later, when he actually won the election, he was telling people, including he told the United States Senator, according to the New York Times, we think the tape was doctored. He doesn't show any remorse, any anything. For He never admits a mistake, even the smallest mistake. He never admits he's done anything wrong. He never admits that he's harmed anyone, even when it's manifestly clear that he had. He, because he lacks that remorse and because there is no pushback um, among his supporters, at least until now, he keeps going on. 
and on and on. And he doubles down and it's exemplified by these horrific and manifestly defamatory and false charges he's been making against a guy he doesn't like, Joe Scarborough. And he's entitled not to like Scarborough, right? Because Scarborough says all sorts of mean but truthful things about the president. But fine, I get it. He doesn't like Scarborough. But the notion that you could go and accuse somebody of murder on not only a lack of any factual basis, but where it's disprovable is and has been disproven is, and and have can p- continue to persist in doing that when people are telling him this is just not true he wasn't there the, she she was a medical condition what what is wrong with you and it's just amazing and that's just that's just an element of his psychopathy well, let's talk about truth though for a moment because it doesn't matter that something is objectively untrue to Donald Trump it seems correct and, there, and, no, Trump, and truth means nothing to him. Right. Truth and falsity, he's incapable of distinguishing between what we would call truth and falsity. There is only for him what he wants to say at a given moment. And he doesn't care about whether it's true. He'll make it true. He'll, yeah. he'll abuse and stifle those uh-huh. who say it's untrue, including the people around him. He'll say something is true one minute and then say it's not true the next or contradict himself with some other statement the next. He'll make these contradictory statements within hours of of one another. He will deny reality even if it's on videotape. He didn't do it in the case of the Billy Bush tape, but he did it, remember, it's somewhat trivial but actually quite revealing, when he said – on camera, I think in the East Room, he introduced the CEO of Apple, Tim, what's his last name, Tim? Cook. Tim, Tim Cook. Cook, right. He said, Tim Apple. And then he started to say, called out for that mistake. I mean, it's an mm-hmm. easy mistake. It's a, it's a, it's a silly, it's a silly. I couldn't remember stu- right now. I, sh- <laughs> I should remember the name of Tim Cook. I didn't remember right now. We all make slips. Yeah. He makes more than most, but we all make slips. And he said, Tim Apple. It's just something to laugh about. It's not trivial. Yet he he denied that he said Tim Apple. He started telling people he said Tim Cook of Apple really fast. The thing's on videotape. Yeah. He, he denied it. And, and then remember that. And then, of course, the Sharpie, the Sharpie, right? He makes a slight mistake. He lists the state that this hurricane is likely to hit, and he adds in Alabama. And people mm-hmm. in Alabama see the uh, learn of the tweet, and they freak out, and they're they're getting nervous. Should I, should I, should I pack up my belongings and drive inland? <laughs> and the weather service has to issue a corrective statement saying, "No, no, no! If you're in Alabama, we don't think you're going to get hit." Yeah, and pay no we, attention to what the man in the spent, Oval Office right. is telling and then you. We spent you know, it was a, it was a, it was a minor mistake. Yeah. Of significance, but correctable and immediately correctable. And it would have been a 20-minute story, but then he starts insisting. Yeah. You know, there was this little sliver in the southeast corner of Alabama that had something like a 5% chance yeah. of being hit by by 60-mile-an-hour winds. Yeah. And so they start focusing on that. And then he has a chart, a map in the Oval Office, and it's manifestly doctored with a thick black marker of the sort that the president likes to sign things with. Gee, who did that? I don't. They asked him, who did that? He said, 
I don't know who did that. <laughs> you know, I think I think what would be really fun and uh, and enlightening, uh, supremely educational. Be my impression you know, maybe, of Donald Trump. <laughs> no, I was going to say a conversation with a psychologist about the presentation of narcissistic personality disorder in order to put into context. Hey, listen, it, the, it might, be, a, it might be an idea for a future pro- yeah. podcast. Yeah. I've spoken, you know, I wrote an 11,427 word article in The Atlantic about his psychological state and how it relates to what I concern myself with, which is the Constitution yeah. and the constitutional duties of the presidency under Article 2. And, you know, in doing that, I, I spoke to a number, or oh, I got to know a number of mental health professionals who are quite, obviously quite conversant in this and have focused yeah. on this. Yeah, of course. Right. Like my, yeah. my friend, Dr. Frank here in the district who wrote a whole book on it. And, um, Dr. Craig Malkin, who is the world's greatest, one of the world's greatest experts on narcissism. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, let's put a pin in that and maybe come back to it. I want to pivot to some different topics here. We started off by talking about you know, 2015, 2016, and how your process of, of realization, let's call it, that, that you couldn't support this guy, that he was super bad news, right? Yeah, well, in 2016, I did support the guy, and I did support the guy, and, and also because you know, my wife was involved, and I was happy to see him elected because at that point, I still believed, as I mentioned earlier, you know, he'd calm himself down. He'd become more presidential once he became president because that's what people do. And he'd be surrounded by good people, I hoped and thought, and that they, that would all act as a constraint. And it turned out 2017 comes around and things go off the rails immediately. And even then, I'm thinking, well, remember the early days of the Clinton administration? That was very problematic because there were a lot of people who were there and who had not been there before, and the pecking orders hadn't been established, and they were learning the ropes. You know, it's not an easy thing to take control of the government of the United States. It takes a while to figure out what's going on if you don't, if you're not organized, particularly if you're not organized in the right way, which they weren't because they had a very disrupted transition. Um, and if you don't, right, if you don't have the right people, and if things are you know, th- things just don't go the right way. And and you have a hostile press, particularly with a Republican administration is going to have a hostile press. And speaking of taking over the government at that time, uh, you know, maybe some people don't know this, but you were being considered Correct. for a post. I was being considered. Uh, Jeff Sessions asked me mm-hmm. in February um, if I would take control of the civil division of the United States the Department of Justice as the assistant attorney general in charge of the civil division, virtually all, virtually all the civil litigation other than perhaps, you know, civil rights enforcement or environmental enforcement goes into the civil division. If people have a claim against the government because they think the gov- you know, a, a government truck did something or, you know, it, or so this is a massive, it's, a massive, a massive. it's, it's the, the United States government is the number one litigant in the courts of the United States because it's the United States government and <sighs> the civil division of the U.S. Department of Justice is essentially the nation's largest law firm. And so I I was honored to tell Attorney General Sessions that I would do it. But as I was, you know, I filled out the forms, I had the FBI check. And as that was being done and completed, I'm watching what's going on in Washington. 
I'm still up in New Jersey with our four kids. Kellyanne is in DC and I'm watching this. Can I say shit show on this? Yeah, uh, yes, sure. Dave, I can Why say not? shit show on a podcast. <laughs> I actually described this once on another podcast a couple of years ago as watching a shit show in a dumpster fire. And that's what the administration was turning out to be. And the key moment for me was watching him, watching Trump in the wake of his firing of Jim Comey, which was really one of the dumbest things any president has ever done. You know, firing an FBI director in the middle of an investigation that affected So that was a warning sign for you. It it, it was more than that. I mean, I'm watching that. And okay, so he fires the guy. There were plenty of reasons to get rid of Jim Comey. But he does it for the wrong, the one wrong reason. He has Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, put out a statement listing the right reasons why one would get rid of Jim Comey the way he mishandled the Clinton email investigation and made inappropriate statements that actually ironically helped Donald Trump get elected, but let's leave right. that aside. Sure. Yep. And the next day, there is a, and I remember this, sitting in a doctor's office in North Jersey reading this article, there's a Washington Post article that's sourced to about 30 Republicans inside and outside the White House talking about how In the days leading up to the firing, Trump was just raging about the Russia investigation. And then he goes on NBC News with Lester Holt and says, I did it because of Russia. And I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. wow, wow. Like what an admission, right? What what an admission. And even if you were annoyed, how could you be so insane as to say that? What is wrong with this guy? And what is he hiding? What is going on here? Right, it, right. It, it, it's cr- this is crazy. It was right. crazy to do it, right. and the reason to do it was crazy. And saying that was the reason you did this crazy thing, and saying the crazy reason for doing the crazy thing was itself crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. So you you watch this, and, and and it was like what? And on top of everything yeah. else, yeah, the you know sending Sean Spicer out on the day of the inauguration to say he had the largest inaugural crowd in history. I mean, what was that? There was no shame in that crowd. It was a very large crowd and it was raining. And these are Republicans in the district of Columbia. He was mad that because, because people were comparing it to Obama's crowd. Of course, Obama was going to have a larger crowd. He was the first black president. He's a Democrat in an area that's surrounded by Democrats. And it was a sunny, bright day. Of course, they were going to, it was going to be huge. There was no shame in the crowd, but he couldn't help himself. And all of these things just mounted together made you think there's something wrong here. And it made me think- I don't know that I want to go into this, particularly with my wife in the White House taking all this flack. What's the upside in going into this government, particularly now? Um, and, and the next step was the ultimate decider, really. The next step was a few days later, I'm driving home from work in, in New York. I work midtown Manhattan at a law firm, and I'm driving out to New Jersey where I live, and I hear on WCBS News a 
they break into the traffic report or something and they say, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein has appointed Robert Mueller to be special counsel to investigate the Russia investigation. And I, yeah. I hear that. And at that point, that was that kind of self, sealed the deal. I was 98%, 99% yeah. certain I yeah. just wasn't going to do it because at that, I had the sense as I was driving across the GW Bridge that day. Well, this means, what does this mean? This means that Trump is going to be at war with the Department of Justice. And I'm going to be working at the Department of Justice and my wife's going to be at the White House. This is just crazy. There's, there's, there's no upside to this. And at that point, I began resolving myself, you know, talking to a couple of people to sort of work it through. I began thinking, I have to get out of this somehow. And I yeah. they had done the FBI check. I hadn't done the, I hadn't finished the financial disclosure forms, which actually weren't very hard to do. I mean, they're pain in the butt, but they're not, they wouldn't, weren't at sure. point going to be hard to do for me because I'd already done them for Kellyanne. Right. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to work so hard on filling these forms out while I think mm-hmm. about this. And I had the nominee for a, a dep- associate attorney general, uh, Rachel Brand saying, where are your forms? Where are your forms? You got to get your forms in. And I started dragging my feet on that. And finally, I just, I just said I wasn't going to do it. And I wrote a letter saying I'm not going to do it. And I, you know, the letter said, oh, it's just not the best thing for our family at this point in time. And I still support the president. But you know, the reason I didn't feel it was the right thing for the family at the time is I didn't want to go into a shit show and a dumpster fire, which was basically what the government of the United States appeared to be at that point, and frankly still is. And so that, that was my story. But meanwhile, I'm trying to figure out, I, I, as a citizen, I'm trying to figure out what, what is wrong here. Is he really this bad? Is he the problem? And, you know, I go back and forth on that. And I was remember being hopeful that General Kelly, when he became chief of staff, could restore some order and, and exert the kind of control and structure around Trump that would keep him functional. And that was clearly not going to happen. And I, all the while wondering, well, what's wrong with, what, what, what is wrong with him? What's his problem? Why can't he just be normal? And one day, sometime in, I guess, 2018, I came across an article that had been written the year before, or it was an article in Rolling Stone magazine that explained the nature of and the diagnostic criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. Um, interviewed a number of mental health professionals and laid out the case that Trump had NPD. And at that point, when I read that, I remember that. I, I remember, that. and I said yeah. it was like a light bulb went off. And I, I, yeah. I'm someone who never focuses on, on psychology. I didn't take it in college. Yeah. At that point, though, I realized, well, this this is definable. I can see that he has these traits. It's in Diagnostic and Statistical Manu- Manual of mental mm-hmm. disorders edition five you know this is something he meets these this checklist this nine point checklist of which you only yeah. have to satisfy five and he's nine for nine yeah and at Every that point i realized after reading some more which is that they don't change i realized he's never going to get better and in fact he was going to get worse and you could see him getting worse as he got rid of 
or broke the constraints around him. I think in the beginning of, in 2018, he started thinking, I, have, I got the hang of this job. And he started ignoring people more. And we've, you know, we've been off to the races ever since. And that's what, and that's sort of where, where I concluded. And I read more about the psychological aspects of him and what professionals had been saying. And I realized that he was not just somebody with narcissistic personality disorder, but there was little doubt that he had antisocial personality disorder, which is sociopathy or, or psychopathy. It's very close to psychopathy. And in fact, many people had described him as a malignant narcissist and some of the greatest tyrants of human history were malignant narcissists. And the, when you read all this stuff, you see that the mental health professionals in 2016, as early as 2016, predicted how he would turn out. And one of the things that happens with malignant narcissists is when they are cornered, they become very, they're very destructive, but they're also very self-destructive. And I think we're seeing a lot of the bizarre behavior that we're seeing now literally dovetails with what these people were saying would happen back in 2016. They said, this is what will happen if Donald Trump is elected president. And sure enough, it did. So I want to move to Trumpism because we talk about, you know, Trump and this narcissistic personality disorder and the way he seems to get a pass on everything. And he's still getting a pass on, on everything. The Lincoln Project in our mission statement, right? We're talking about Defeating Donald Trump and Trumpism, that's our goal this year, 20, November 2020, to defeat Donald Trump and Trumpism at the ballot box. What is Trumpism? How do you, how do you describe that? Uh, Trumpism is, has, is this perversion of conservatism. It's not conservatism. It is essentially a personality cult. The Republican Party, which is why I left it and filed my form to become a, an unaffiliated voter, an unaffiliated voter, which is what they call it in New Jersey. I did that because at that point I realized the Republican party is a personality cult. This is something that happens with malignant narcissistic leadership is that there is an element of the population that wants this supreme leader who projects himself as infallible, even when he clearly isn't, and is willing to ignore contrary facts and apparent and you know he's brought into the party people who wanted that and they want that more than they want any particular principle of government abstract principle of government effectuated and and the problem with that is that it becomes such a powerful force within the Republican party that all of the politicians who know better in the party are cowed by it. And that's what we have been seeing now for three and a half years. So when we say that we are holding accountable those who have violated their oaths to the Constitution, because you're right that he's brought a whole lot of people into the party who were not there before, but we're talking about the people who have been there for a very long time. So let's break this down for, for a lay person who maybe doesn't carry around a Constitution in their back pocket. What is the oath that these elected officials take when, they are, when they're sworn in, and what does it mean? What does it mean to violate that oath? Well, the oath is pretty simple. You, you're, you're swearing to abide by and uphold the Constitution and laws of the United States, the different oaths that the president and judges and 
and legislators may vary in their precise form, but essentially is you swear allegiance not to the president, not to any individual, and in a sense, not even to the country or the people of the country, you swear allegiance to the Constitution and laws of the United States, which right. are which is significant because that's what binds us together. We are a nation of laws and not of men. And that's why we have our public officials swear an oath to obey the law. And in the case of Trump, Trump continually challenges that. He shows contempt for the law. He violated the law in obstructing justice, obstructing the Mueller investigation. He violated the law by withholding money that he was legally obligated to pay out to Ukraine and using that leverage of not paying the money to Ukraine to extort the Ukrainians into helping him trash Joe Biden. That was illegal as well. It violated the Constitution. He he has total contempt for the law. And in terms of what for example, the Senate did in the impeachment trial, they had two oaths to comply with. The one oath is the oath that they take when they assume their office as senators, you know, in January of a, of a, after an election year, they swear an oath, um, again, to abide by the constitution and laws, which include that you impeach and remove a president who engages in high crimes and misdemeanors. Right. And then at the beginning of the impeachment trial, they swore an additional oath, which is an oath to render impartial justice. Right. And what that means is you are not going to render your verdict. You're acting as a court. Mm-hmm. You're acting as a judicial body. And you are mm-hmm. not going to render your judicial judgment, this is what the oath essentially provides, mm-hmm. except impartially. You're mm-hmm. not going to say, I'm going to let this guy off because he's a member of my party or he's a, mem- he's a friend, and I'm going to convict this guy because he's the other side and he said something mean to me. You're going to treat whoever's in the dock equally on the basis of the law and on basis of the evidence in front of you. And what happened in the case of the Senate trial is they didn't even want to hear the evidence. 52 Republican senators, all of them except for for Mitt Romney, voted not to hear any evidence. And there was a lot of evidence to be had. And in the very beginning, Mitch McConnell stood in front of a a press and said, I'm not an impartial juror. He's not impartial. And he basically spent those weeks making sure that nobody got it into their heads that they should be hearing one whit of evidence, of live evidence, of testimony, such as testimony of John Bolton, who apparently had something to say, mm-hmm. that would be evidence of the president's crimes. And precisely because of that, I mean, and, and why, why, why would you stop the evidence? If, if the president was innocent, what, what, what's there to be afraid of? They were yeah. afraid that the evidence would put them in a bind. It would put them in a bind between the part of the, the, the part of the public who says, holy crap, this is we have a criminal as a president, yeah. and their own base and the president yeah. who might tweet at them. So it really is as simple as that. 
It, it is as simple as that. I think what a lot of voters, and especially Republicans who want to believe that maybe maybe Trump is is bad news, right? But he's the president, and and we have the Senate, and we have Mitch McConnell, and we have Susan Collins, and we have Cory Gardner, and we have we have this you know sort of group of of folks who are supposed to know better and can stand up to the president when they have to. And it seems to be true that it is as simple as they were looking out for their own interest. Absolutely. And they were afraid. You know, there's this all-for-one mentality in the Senate among the Republicans. And they were afraid that if any of them broke ranks, and it only would have taken three to hear evidence, Mm-hmm. And if, if they broke ranks, then they'd have this ongoing trial that showed how bad Donald Trump was. People in the base would get mad, and some of them would be subjected to primary opposition, and, 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 or would, they'd lose the support of the base. And, you know, democracy is supposed to be responsive. Democratic representatives are supposed to be responsive to the people. Right. But we don't hold, but we have representatives for a reason. We don't conduct referenda on everything, mm-hmm. these people swear to exercise judgment, and in this case, without fear or favor, and pursuant to the law. And they didn't do that. And this, is, this was about whether there were any legal constraints on the president. Because if you were going to make up a, a crazy hypothetical about when impeachment would be warranted, I remember thinking of this and writing this at the time in September 7, 2019, when the first allegations about Ukraine came out. I remember, and in fact, we wrote this, uh, a friend of mine and I wrote this in the Washington Post, that you couldn't think of a hypothetical that was more extreme. It was just ridiculous. You could, it was almost, it was like almost one of those, a movie script that was so absurd that you wouldn't. That you would that, that that they wouldn't make a movie out of it, and in fact, he did this. There really is wasn't any evidence that he didn't do it. I mean, he can say all he wants that the call was perfect. The call indicates that he was putting pressure on this guy. And didn't didn't Lamar Alexander even acknowledge that he yes. that he? I think he even stood up and said, "Yeah, basically, he did it, and we're not going to convict him." Right, because it was they. You know, they they then tried to minimize it. But if he's willing to do this. And he has the personality traits that he does. You're basically telling him he can do whatever he wants. And in fact, he says that. He says that Article 2 of the Constitution lets him do whatever he wants. And then, yeah. you know, you know p- pathetic Susan Collins, the senator from Maine, who we are doing our best to defeat, went yeah. out and said she thought the president learned his lesson. She literally said that like the yeah. day of the, yeah, the day of the acquittal or the day after. And yeah. within another day, <laughs> Trump is basically go, goes out and gives this yeah. rant in yeah. the East Room declaring victory. And they ask her, mm-hmm. ask her, well, that didn't seem like that didn't seem like he was had learned his lesson. And she said, well, uh, I, I she said something. It, it was aspirational. It was aspirational. I, I, it was aspirational. I was hoping that he would learn his lesson. Of course, he didn't. But the framers put this provision, the impeachment and removal, they, they made removal from office the ultimate sanction for conviction upon a charge of impeachment precisely because the remedy is designed to prevent a, 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 mal- a maleficent office holder from engaging in misconduct again. Yeah. 
Okay, so this next question is a bit of a windup. I'm sorry, but it, it's directly related to both the the self interest of the Senate, the folks that we've been talking about, and and also uh, I think something that a lot of voters are feeling. Definitely some that I've talked to, even even you know my family and my extended family. But when when voters think about the trade off, the let's call it the transaction of maintaining support for the president despite all of their objections. Maybe they agree with a lot of what we're talking about, but only because of a single policy or a thing that they get in exchange. For example, judges, right? Everybody, there are so many conservative voters all around the country who are hanging on or have held on so far because of the judges that he's put in office. And so uh, was there, for you, was there ever a question as a conservative, as a conservative attorney who who understand who understands better than most the composition of the court and and whether the policies Trump was promoting as president or or the judges that he would nominate were worth tolerating everything that is reprehensible about him. And the answer is, as I became more cognizant of how bad he was, the answer was no. And Fundamentally, it's because if you're a conservative lawyer, um, you believe in the rule of law. If you're truly a conservative lawyer, you believe in checks and balances. You believe that a president of the United States is, as provided for in the Constitution, charged with executing faithfully the laws of the United States. I mean, it's just, that's what the text says. We believe in the text of the Constitution. That's what the text says. He's not capable of it. He's shown himself to be incapable of it. It was this New York Times article that went into how he, how they've been dealing with the wall. You know, they basically had to violate the law to try to get the wall built. It turns out, as of the other day I saw, they've only built three miles of brand new wall where there was no wall before. But leave that aside, they took money from other purposes and they declared an emergency. He declared an emergency and he's using money that wasn't appropriated by Congress to build this wall. But there was an article in the New York Times describing more about his attitude toward it. He was basically saying, just violate, just who cares about these laws? You, you just let them sue you. And if there's a problem, I'll pardon you. And one ad- administration official, who, of course, as they always do in these kinds of articles, um, was anonymous, said, you know, he thinks he thinks it's this is like New York real estate again, where you just, you know, you just get into these lawsuits and you settle them. And the, this senior administration official or this administration official said, you know, he has to understand, he ought to understand that the government isn't like that. And that's right. You don't do that when you're the government. And not only that, when you're the president of the United States, you're charged with enforcing the laws and obeying the laws. You're not just some hack real estate in, investor who, who can just push the limit and get sued and then settle. You're actually in charge of not violating, that, making sure people don't do what you seem to want to do. and. That's the thing about Donald Trump. There's so many things, but that's that's the thing. As a conservative lawyer, you ha- you, you 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 would lose sleep over, and I know and I know that there are many who lose sleep over it. Sure. How would you break this down? Who someone who doesn't have a law degree, who who is not a a skilled and practiced attorney, 
How would you break this down? The importance of this down to a voter. This is we live in a free country because the government at the end of the day, whether it makes mistakes along the way, obeys the law and is a government of law. It's not that the president can just issue a decree and say, here's what I want. Or the president. The president is what I'm saying. He can't just yeah. issue a decree and make law. That's what that's what happened in Nazi Germany. They they passed the law in the in in, in the Reichstag that said that oh the, her Hitler can just make laws whenever he wants by just signing a piece of paper, and they basically signed over their democracy to one man. And what Trump believes at the end of the day is that what he wants is what is right and that article 2 of the constitution he says allows him to do whatever he wants which is why he showed no compunction about doing what he did to obstruct the Mueller investigation and no compunction about what he did with Ukraine and then ultimately said that it was perfect he if there are no checks on him he he there would be no limit to the destruction of our democracy that he would engage in. Fortunately, there are limits. We have, we have, we you know, the, the dem- we have a democratic Congress. We have courts. We have, you know, he does have lawyers telling him and people telling him that you know if you do this, this will happen. And he does to some extent listen to that. And people are afraid of violating the law and being liable themselves for violating the law. In fact, in connection with, I mean, that, that same story I told you about, about him building the, and wanting to build right. the wall and violate the yeah. laws. I mean, people would just ignore what he was telling them Yeah, because they realized, <laughs> well, I'd be personally liable if I engaged in this misconduct. Yeah. Because the president may not care about breaking the law, but I'd be on the hook too. Correct. Yeah. And so we, you know, there there are checks on this man, fortunately. Yeah. yeah. But the problem is you don't want in that office a man who needs all those checks every day and is pushing out against them in ways yeah. that are completely out of bounds. And that's what he does. Yeah. So this is a perfect segue. So we're talking about checks and balances and how even if you like Trump, even if you like the way he behaves, even if you think he's fighting for you or he's fighting for the things that you want, what he's doing is expanding presidential power dramatically or, or trying to. Well, in, at the end of the or, day, the irony is that he's, he's going and, to end up reducing presidential power because there's right. a backlash against it. And we saw this in, right. in the mid-1970s. But your question brings up something else. A lot of people liked Trump and still like him today, including and especially, I think, evangelical voters. They like him because he fights. Yeah. He fights. He's not just going to roll over to the other side. Mm-hmm. The problem is he only fights for himself. He only believes in himself. He only, he doesn't have any fundamental beliefs at all. 
I think that's starting to become clear now. Absolutely. I think I think for a long time it was it was easy to believe for, for especially for evangelical voters it was easy for them to believe that he was fighting for them. Right. That they were getting something out of this transactional market. They were going into it you know clear-eyed and and had plenty of objections but they were getting something back out of this out of this bargain and that was enough. And I've talked to plenty of them who have said yeah, I just, you know, I, I really don't like the way he talks. I don't like the things, I don't like the things he says, but he is fighting for me. And I would rather have somebody fighting for me than somebody who's not. And what do you say to someone who who maybe doesn't quite understand the consequences of his, let's say there is no backlash, right? Or that presidential power is expanded. Hey, here's what I say. Tens of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people are dead because he didn't want to fight for the people. He only wanted to fight for his reelection, and, and and he thought the key to his reelection was convincing people that this virus would go away. He doesn't fight for people. He fights for himself. He doesn't fight for conservative values. One conservative value is fiscal responsibility. At least I thought it was. He put he 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 ran up three point five trillion dollars in additional debt. For the United States of America, even before this was before the, the coronavirus, this had nothing to right. do with now. COVID. Now it's got to be yeah. a five or five or six trillion. Yeah, yeah and it's going to keep going. He doesn't care about that. All this for you know, foreign policy is completely incoherent. For for people who believed in Ronald Reagan and you know believed in Reagan conservatism, he's the ultimate nightmare. I want to I want to close out with a question about the upcoming Supreme Court cases. So there's there's Vance and there's one other one. What are, the, what are the two? Yeah, the two cases that are coming up that will be decided uh, by the Supreme Court by the end of June. Because they're directly related to presidential power. They are directly right. related to Trump's power to use his office to prevent investigation of his personal affairs. And I mean that in multiple senses. The first case, the one that I, I most am focused on, is Vance against Trump. And that case is a case that was brought by Trump to challenge subpoenas issued by the New York County, which is the state, a district attorney in Manhattan, the state, the state district attorney in Manhattan. And they are investigating extensive allegations based upon a lot of media reporting. They're investigating two things. One is based upon a lot of that reporting the Trump organization's taxes, whether they are understating, whether they're committing tax fraud. Basically, they understate assets when it helps them and overstate assets when it helps them and provide different numbers to the state taxing officials than they have on their own books. That's part of the allegation to oversimplify. They're also investigating the hush money payments that Trump made through former attorney Michael Cohen to Stormy Daniels, the pornographic act- actress, and Karen McDougal, Dougal, the former Playboy playmate. And those were found, in essence, by the federal government, by the Department of Justice, to have violated federal election laws because they were made to advance his candidacy and they weren't reported. That's why one of the reasons why Michael Cohen went to jail. And in the plea and in the sentencing proceedings for Michael Cohen, the government, the United States government, um, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, the finest U.S. Attorney's Office in the country, represented to the court that the evidence showed that Michael Cohen had done what he did, committed his illegal acts 
at the direction of someone the prosecutors called individual one. And that individual one ran a real estate company in New York and was running for president in 2016, according to the papers. Mm-hmm. So you do, do do math. But anyway, um, those payments, all, along with the tax issues, involve significant potential violations of the law of the state of New York and is being investigated by a New York grand Manhattan grand jury and the district attorney's office. And Trump seeks to stop that investigation. And in particular, what's at issue is they subpoenaed his accountants. And Trump is arguing that because he's president and he's so busy, my accountants can't answer your subpoena. Nothing's being asked of Trump. Right. He doesn't have to do anything. The the documents could probably are probably on a CD and could be just walked over to the district attorney's office in an hour. I'll bet. Yeah. It wouldn't take that much. And he went, took this case. He lost in the district court in Manhattan and he lost in the court of appeals uh, for the second circuit, which covers New York. And now it's in the Supreme court and the leading precedent that shows why Trump should lose is a case that I actually participated in the litigation of um, 25 years ago. And it's called, <laughs> it's called William Jefferson Clinton versus Paul Corbin Jones. And in that case, Bill Clinton tried to get out of litigating his sexual, the sexual harassment case brought against him by Paula Jones. And I ghost wrote a brief that won in the Supreme Court, nine nothing. I personally ghost wrote that brief, it's just ironic. Wow. Wow. And the Supreme Court held the president is subject to the legal process just like anyone else when he is being called to account for his personal non-official conduct. There is an immunity doctrine that applies when the president is engaging in official acts because we don't want the president to be tied down with a million lawsuits if he does something that people don't like. But he's claiming not that he would be sued or he's required to do anything. It's just that he might be potentially required to do something. And, And what's amazing about the claim that he's making today. And the Supreme Court was having none of it. At the so, so he's basically saying not, not that a whole bunch of people are suing him, but that they could, well, that they could, that he could be charged and he has to think about it and so on and so forth. And the Supreme Court is having none of it at the oral argument. He's going to lose that case. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, going to lose that. it seven, two, eight, one, nine, nothing. It's not, it's not going to be pretty, but what, what's, what's really, really outrageous about his claim and shows you the arrogance and the narcissism of Donald Trump is in effect, he's arguing not only he's gone way beyond what Clinton was arguing. Clinton wasn't, was, was arguing personal immunity, at least temporary immunity. Trump is arguing that in effect, even his company is immune. They can't even be, his company can't be subpoenaed. His accountants can't be subpoenaed. He's arguing, you know, if, if it turns out that they had evidence that the, the the district attorney could get evidence that the Trump Corporation and not Donald Trump were committing a crime. Trump is saying you can't investigate that. You can't even look into it. You can't investigate anyone around me or anything that has anything to do with me. Essentially, I'm above the law. I'm above the law, and the Supreme Court is not going to have any part of that. The other case, I think, should go the same way. It's a little bit trickier. And the name of the case? The name of the case is the Mazars case, which is also is the name of the accounting firm. Mazar versus I, I, the committee, uh, one of the houses of 
Representatives Committees. Got it. It involves congressional oversight. And that involves not only the question of whether the president is like anyone else, but it also involves the subject matter of, you know, what's a proper, what's a proper subject for investigation by Congress and what hoops they have to jump through to engage in that sort of investigation. I mean, the, 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 the Trump people are making some extreme arguments that in essence, that if you're investigating things that involve potential criminal conduct, uh, well, that's not the proper subject of a congressional investigation unless you're conducting it pursuant very specifically to an impeachment inquiry. And in essence, what's I think they're going to lose that case, and I think they're going to lose that case big, although people were making a big deal out of some of the questioning and saying, ooh, it's going to be close. I, I, don't, I don't think it will be, but I could be wrong on that. Um, what's really amazing about that case and about the about the Trump, the other case, the, the Vance case. case, is yeah. Donald Trump is using the fact that he's being investigated for criminal conduct, crimes, <laughs> as something that protects him. Think about how perverse that is. <laughs> Look, I'm being invested for that. That entitles me to special protection because they're invest. They, they say I committed a crime, and they have a- and they might have evidence. And he's and, basically and he's thinking like, oh, that that you know. Normally, I think most people would think that's bad, and that if you're if you're being suspected of committing a crime, that probably puts you in a weaker position, both in, in court or politically. He's saying. That protects me. It's just not to be believed. And, and people are going to look back someday and just say, what? What? We yaki argued that? Anyway, it's been fun. Yeah. George, if you had five minutes right now with the president alone, <laughs> what would you say to him? Oh, it wouldn't be pretty. I'd tell him that he was the worst, most incompetent, incapable and most inept president in history, and that he should just hang it up. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Think I mean, so there's either. just no point talking to this man. Which is why everyone needs to get out and vote. Which is why we're gonna we're, we're gonna we're gonna send them packing. That's right, George. This has been very enlightening. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We just started, so when you do you'll be helping more voters discover it because the podcast will rise on the ranking systems, amplifying our message that Republicans all over the country are turning against Donald Trump. This is a time of change in America. In an upcoming episode, I'll talk with Tara Setmeyer, a former GOP communications director and political commentator about the Republican Party and race. I'll see you in the next episode. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.